0: I want to pull out one quote from William James before we go into the meditation. Just one we've already read it, but I want to read it verbatim. So I don't have to paraphrase. He's so good with language. So let's see what it is. There it is. So two quotes, but they're very closely related. They're very relevant now. And that is, just to remind you, uh, here just a paraphrase, and I'll tell you when the quote begins, where preferences are powerless to modify or produce things. Faith is totally inappropriate. But for the class of truths that depend on personal preference, trust, or loyalty for actualization, then I quote, faith is not only licit and pertinent, but essential, essential and indispensable. Such truths cannot become true till our faith has made them so. And then the second one is this one. I really like it. In what manner do we espouse and hold fast to visions? By thinking a conception might be true somewhere. It may be true even here and now. It is fit to be true, and it ought to be true. It must be true. It shall be true for me. So I had a conversation today that Reminded me that uh, there was a practice I think I taught just once, that is, gave a guided meditation just once early on in this retreat. Um, Loving kindness practice entailing the four visions, the kind of fourfold vision quest. Um, I'd like to do this at the end of the retreat, it's kind of a dedication of merit, but we'll have a warm up, a dress rehearsal uh, now. And so I won't talk about it. This will be a guided meditation. Um, But related to that, Um, I never mentioned the etymology or the actual literal meaning of the word placebo. I've talked a lot about it. I don't need to say again what I've said before. Placebo, placebo effect. Um, But the term, just about positive, goes back to the Latin. And placebo means please me. Please me. And so it has a very clear positive connotation. Uh, The doctor giving you a tablet, telling you such and such will take place. You want it to take place. It should be true, it ought to be true, it will be true, it shall be true for me. And then lo and behold, in some way that is simply not only unknown, but inexplicable in terms of a materialistic paradigm. It it just shouldn't be happening at all. And so why don't we just call it by something that it's not, and then we'll pretend as if it's not there. Um, This placebo effect that we can believe something will take place within the body, the mechanisms of which we totally do not understand, and yet by that aspiration, the belief, the conviction, the aspiration, again the aspiration, um, not in every single case, obviously placebo doesn't always work, but as this pharmaceutical head of R&R for a major pharmaceutical company told me, half of the benefit you get from drugs of all kinds, half is from your placebo. Thing. So placebo effect, <coughs> that was a little bit of repetition. Now something that wasn't repetition or isn't repetition uh, it's not only the placebo effect works in very mysterious ways uh, to bring about these effects, benevolent, positive effects that one wishes for, but there's also something called the nocebo effect. And nocebo means, "Don't please me. please me not." Right? And this happens quite sadly, uh, on many occasions when people who uh, either can't afford uh, health insurance or medical care or just want to shortcut. Uh, they'll have some symptoms crop up, something, something bad in their body. Uh, and then they go into the internet, and they look for the symptoms. And they say, oh, okay, uh, they probably see multiple uh, websites and say, ah. And then they say, ah, that one looks like what I have. And it's not only those symptoms, but also there are other symptoms. I, I think I, that's what I have. I, I, I think that's probably it. Because I see, yeah, two, three of those symptoms I have. And there are three others that, um, boy, those go with that too. And believing now that they have the illness described on the website, they actually develop the other symptoms that they read about, that they believe they have, when in fact they don't have that disease at all. Okay. So like so many other things, karma and so forth, uh, it goes both ways. This is very relevant. This was not just an excursion into uh, medicine, mind-body medicine. But it has everything to do with our aspirations, with our vision, what we believe is possible and what we believe is probably not possible. Right? And if we think it's probably not possible, not a person like me anyway, maybe it's possible for a few people, but probably not for a person like me. After all, I haven't made that much progress in six, seven, seven weeks. And it was a whole seven weeks after all, all in a row. You know? uh, when we enter into that kind of afflictive doubt, afflictive uncertainty, uh, we may be giving ourselves a great big spoonful of nocebo. Don't please me. Don't please me. Or like Edison, the very next quote from Edison was, so many of people who are failures in life, they got that close. And then because they believed that they could not succeed, lo and behold, they didn't. You know. So having a vision, having a vision, having a clear vision, what would you love to be true? It should be true. It ought to be true. It could be true. It could be true here. It must be true. It shall be true for me. And then, just don't give yourself a timeline within 10 days, within 150 days, within a six-month retreat. If it's really that good, if it's something truly meaningful, and not just provisionally meaningful, you know, good for... There, there are many things that are only good for a certain time. And then after that, oh, it, that time is past. It's no longer of interest, right? But the things like the shamatha, the two bodhisattvas, and so forth—if these are not provisionally valuable, you know, only if you're middle-aged, or only if you're young, or only if you're old, or only if you're a man or a woman, or whatever—only if you're a Buddhist—they're uh, only provisionally true. That's a different deal. But if we've st- if we've gone so deep in terms of the type of practices and theories that we've been exploring for these last se- seven weeks, then Put no time limit on it, and hold that conviction fast. Find your vision, and it's your vision. I'm not trying to give you one. I'm giving you, certainly, I'm giving you possibilities. That's certainly my job, to take you by the hand and lead you into the realm of possibility, where I spend most of my life. You know? um, but when you see something clicks for you, that it becomes your vision, because there was a resonance there, there was an affinity, there was a feeling that this is coming home, and that's what I felt when I read that very first book on Dzogchen. Like, ah, yeah, this, this is familiar. Then hold the vision fast. Hold to it with conviction. Hold to it with prayer, with aspiration. Call for blessings. As one of the, I can't remember which one it was, but you a know, hundred times, pray to your guru, pray to the Buddha. A hundred times pray. Reinforce it. Keep on reinforcing it. Please me. Please me. Please me. Placebo. Placebo. And you know now we're not talking about sugar pills. The real placebo. What really pleases us, hello down there, Buddha nature. Please me. Please me. Make my day. Okay? (laughs) I tickled somebody's funny bone. That's made my day. So you ready to jump in? Let's have our fourfold vision quest. It's a nice meditation. You might want to take it with you. Hopefully by now, when you hear the bell, you begin to salivate, thinking happily about the meditation to come, in a spirit of loving kindness, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Now, this whole practice will be the cultivation of loving kindness for ourselves. You'll find once again that it's a type of variation of tonglen, And it begins with a question. It's a very personal question for which, if there are 39 people in the room, there will be 39 answers. And that is, what is your vision? Of what would make you truly happy? Give you a sense of fulfillment, of meaning, satisfaction. What is your heart's desire? Pose the question and see what comes to mind as you allow your imagination to play venture boldly into the realm of possibility, And then, in the spirit of William James, as he suggested to us, as you seek your vision, it could be true, it might be true, and so on. With each outbreath, arouse the aspiration, may it be true for me. And with each outbreath from this familiar orb of radiant white light at your heart, symbolizing your own pristine awareness, with every outbreath, as if you were breathing life into this vision, let the light flow from your heart and permeate every cell of your body, every aspect of your mind. May I be truly well and happy. And as this light fills your entire being, breath by breath, imagine this vision being realized here and now. Take the fruition as your path. let's pose a second question. Again, in the spirit of loving kindness, in order to realize this vision of yours, this vision of genuine happiness, what would you love to receive from the world around you? From teachers, from friends, from strangers, from the environment at large, what would you love to receive in order to realize your heart's desire? Breath by breath, as you inhale, imagine reality rising up to meet you with each in-breath, light flowing in upon you from all sides, above and below, waves of blessing converging in upon you with every in-breath providing you with all that you truly need, moment to moment, day by day, year by year. All that you truly need to flourish, during this meditation and beyond, imagine reality rising up to meet you, providing you with hedonically pleasant and unpleasant blessings that nurture and sustain and empower you along the path. As you place your highest priority on your innermost desire. And let's pose a third question. In the same spirit of loving kindness, in order to realize your vision, what kind of changes would you love to see within, in your own being? How would you love to transform, to evolve, to mature? From what qualities would you love to be free? What qualities would you love to see grow? What kind of a person would you love to become? With each out-breath, again breathing from the light from your heart, breathe life into this vision. May it be so. May I realize my vision and cultivate its causes. Entering once again boldly into the realm of possibility, this virtual reality conjured up by your imagination. Imagine here and now, breath by breath, becoming the person you would love to become. And we turn to the fourth point, and we begin by highlighting a simple truth, and that is that none of us exist in isolation. Our sense of well-being, the meaning of our lives, fulfillment, is not to be realized independently, for we exist in interrelationship with all those around us. But again, in the same spirit of loving-kindness for ourselves, arouse the fourth and final question. And that is, in order to imbue your life with as much meaning as possible, the greatest possible sense of fulfillment, what would you love to offer to the world around you? Drawing on your own unique background, your skills, your talents, your interests, your gifts, What would you love to offer to those around you, to those who are near and far, in the short term and the long With every outbreath, breathe out the light from your heart and imagine it emanating in all directions. Imagine this light taking on the forms of what you would love to offer, and with the aspiration, may it be so, may it be so. With each outbreath, imagine it becoming so here and now. Take the fruition as your path. Imagine those receiving the gifts you bear and being benefited by what you offer. release all imaginations, release, release all aspirations and objects of the mind, and let your awareness rest in its own nature. So before we turn, return to the text, it just occurred to me in this meditation it might be helpful to unpack um, bodhicitta just a little bit more. So I get to come back to a guide to the bodhisattva way of life, Shantideva. And he points out that there are two types of bodhicitta. And one is the Bodhicitta of aspiration, the aspiring bodhicitta, where you're sitting quietly, perhaps on a, on a bench or a meditation, but you are simply arousing that aspiration, the authentic aspiration, to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings in order to be of greatest possible benefit. And so that aspiration actually flows. It's really is something you yearn for. You more and more embrace as your heart's desire. Desire of desires. So That's one. That's the aspiration. And then there's the engaging bodhicitta. And this is where, with that motivation, just like the Buddha Shakyamuni, having achieved enlightenment, he remained there, as I recall, I think it was 49 days, and then he was moved. No, he was moved, not by karma and klesha, not by boredom, not by anything else other than his bodhicitta, his compassion. And he was moved. And he directed his attention. Now his awareness is really quite unimpeded. Where he directs his attention, like having a very strong flashlight or a torch, it just illuminates wherever he's directing his attention. And he, he thought of people he'd known from his past. It really seemed like he wanted to repay kindness. Uh, and he thought of his first two teachers who had taught him samadhi very early on, very shortly after he left the palace, and thought, oh, they, they're very ripe. They have very little dust on their eyes. And he directed his attention to them and he saw they both passed away. So too late. He couldn't help them this late. But then he directed his attention to his five previous companions. He saw where they were. Uh, and if, any, if you know where Bodhgaya is and Saranat, they're not that close. It's a long walk. But he saw where they were. He saw that they mm, had very little dust on their eyes, that they would be able to hear what he, could sh- what he would share. So then he rose from his seat, and he took the long trek to Saranath. And Lo and behold, there they were. So, but when he rose from his seat, I mean, he had already achieved enlightenment, of course, but now it's engagement, right? And so as there is the aspiring bodhicitta, there's the engaging bodhicitta. And this is when you rise from your seat. And with that motivation, you are sending an email to someone out of the compassionate motivation to be of some service. Maybe they ask you a question and with the motivation of bodhicitta you're just tapping out an email but with the motivation of bodhicitta right and then maybe you're going to make some food for your family and then one thing after another but that which is motivating you your prime directive so to speak you know is bodhicitta so that's engaging bodhicitta that's bodhicitta in action bodhicitta engaged and as we slowly come to the end this quiet time, this time of relative stillness, and then starting to warm up our engines, getting ready in anticipation, with a direction, with a vision of how shall we continue our practice beyond this rather idyllic time of eight weeks. Then it's engaged bodhicitta. So that's one very useful demarcation of bodhicitta. The aspiration and then the implemented aspiration there's another, uh, another way of understanding bodhicitta, in terms of metaphors. I was taught this a long time ago, threefold. And the first of these is called the shepherd-like bodhicitta, shepherd-like bodhicitta. And it shows the great semshuk. It's one of my favorite words in Tibetan. And it doesn't really translate all that well into English. Sem is your heart or your mind. It's both chitta, which is your heart, uh, but also your mind. No difference. But we point here to the heart, yeah? And shuk is your strength, the strength of your heart. Sem-shuk, sem-shuk. And so it shows the sem-shuk, the power of the heart of a bodhisattva, or one who's really aspiring to develop bodhicitta. The shepherd-like bodhicitta. And this is one in which it's an attitude, a stance, an orientation, an aspiration that really takes very much to heart what his only Dalai Lama mentioned. Back in 1979, when he was teaching the Eight, eight Verses of Training Mind by Langli Tamba, when he said, you know, pointed to one half of all the people who congregated there, and then to yourself, okay, which is more important? All these people here or you as one individual? That's easy. I, I can do the arithmetic. And so taking that to heart, and then simply attending to all sentient beings, and again we don't have to we don't have to visualize 100 billion galaxies and so forth we don't want to exclude anybody so don't lead any you know don't say everybody except for those in, in the andromeda galaxy you know don't do that you know so open ended just like the expanse of awareness with no limit okay no limit but we don't have to go through the ordeal of trying to really visualize 100 billion times a trillion planets it stretches the imagination a bit but as i said so practically so from Gen again again uh, one of my teachers Uh, everybody who comes to mind everybody comes to mind so in that regard really doing the exchange of self for others the equalization seeing that each one each one's well-being is of course it's kind of obvious one equals one each one uh, is just as worthy as oneself in terms of their aspirations for happiness wish to be free of suffering but then collectively, actually, they're all that collectively more important than myself. So therefore, just shifting the priority around. Right. And so the metaphor is that of a shepherd. And so at the end of the day, after the, sh- after the sheep have all been grazing and it's time to bring them back to safety, so they're not eaten by wolves and other critters out there, bring them back to safety, back into the corral, undercover, protected, taken care of, watched over, tended to, uh, the shepherd then, in this classic image, it's easy to, easy to imagine, uh, sees to the whole flock, every single one, including the stranglers and for the stray one that's wandered off and so forth, blade by blade, you remember, seeking, making sure all the flock are in, and then all taken care of. Everybody bedded down, and they have maybe some, even some food there in their corral. They're all taken care of. Okay, everybody there. Yep, nobody left behind. Okay, good. All right. Everybody comfy. Okay, close the gate, and then the shepherd goes off and has a meal and then gets some sleep himself. Right? And so attending to the needs of others. And so the aspiration of this shepherd-like bodhicitta is, uh, may I bring everybody to enlightenment before me? Like the shepherd brings every, all the sheep to their, to their bed before he goes to bed himself and has his rest. So may I take care of each one. Of course, this happens all the time. Not for all sentient beings, but how many parents have made sacrifices, postponing their own satisfaction, their own fun, enjoyments, and so forth, for the sake of their children. We don't really think that's all that unusual. And I actually reflected on my homeland, where I was born, and spent much of my youth. And that is, it is just famous in America. The Statue of Liberty there. It's a beautiful, it's, it's Tara, by the way, it's green Tara. Uh, but it's, it's a beautiful image uh, given by the French to, to the American people, uh, given by France. Um, but it happens so many times. It's, it's, it's a really lovely cliche, if there is, can be such a thing, of so many immigrants coming from all over the world, really. I think it's actually unique in that regard. Uh, but coming from all over the world and coming very often quite impoverished, looking to the land of opportunity, and, uh, and then coming, and then the parents making every sacrifice you know, so their children can get an education. Not unusual. Actually, probably more on the contrary, more normal than the parents, you know, just getting all the luxury and said, good luck, kids, I hope you can get alone. I think that was really the exception. Much more common. Parents live very modestly, but, oh, my child got into such and such a college. My child is becoming, and getting all their joy from their children's success. And it's genuine. You know it. Many of you are parents. And so you know it's genuine. It's true, true delight of seeing one's children then prospering, flourishing. And knowing that that can be a chain reaction since I, how do you say, sacrificed, my child will not, ha- will, has been able to flourish like I never could, but now my child will be all the better prepared to take care of his or her children. And they'll be well prepared. And they'll be well rep- In other words, I'm starting a domino effect here. And so I'm sacrificing only one person, but then next generation, next generation, next generation, they can all benefit from the sacrifice of one. So that's, Normal. This is human beings. And they're, they're, as you know, I'm not praising one country, because you can't. It's, this is people from Italy and, and just all over the place. Russia and Asia. And all over the place. You know. It's really noble. And it's usually for one's family. So, good, okay. Local bodhicitta. All of your children equally. Okay, cool. There it is. Little micro bodhicitta. And the bodhisattva is then looking on, upon all sentient beings. As one's parents, as one's children, as one's kin, so there's this very, very bold, this very intrem- tremendous uh, semshuk that may I lead all sentient beings to enlightenment. And when everyone's taken care of, then I'll take care of myself. I dig a lot of, a lot of semshuk, and it's encouraged. You know, think of think along those lines. Try to develop that magnitude of Semshuk, that you'll actually be happy when you see others that you're postponing your own well-being your own, you're postponing your own realization and you know, all the glories of the path you're postponing that but then you're not bereft of joy you're not saying oh poor me, poor me no, just like the parent who's so delighted ecstatic to see their child reaping the benefits of their sacrifice that you're just, get, you're just, you're just bathing in, a, in the empathetic joy Taking delight in empathetic joy, and it's absolutely authentic joy, but it's taking delight in other people's joy. So that's quite something. The Buddhists certainly know how to come up with ideals, I think. And so there's one. As one proceeds along the path, doing one's best to be of service, helping others find the path, proceed along the path, then after some time, something is bound to kind of, again, dawn on you. And that is, um, I think actually I'd be more effective. That's, everything is about being effective, of actually alleviating suffering, helping others find the happiness they seek. I would be more effective if I were with them. That is, as they were transforming, if they, if they mature far along the path, beyond what I've done, then my ability to help them go further is quite limited. You know, They've achieved, let's say, a stage of, let's say, path of accumulation, but I haven't. And I say, oh, I'm so glad you got there, but now I'm not quite sure how I can help you beyond that because I haven't experienced that myself. Right? And so then thinking, well, that was good, but I think in, with the same motivation, I think actually, I better go along with you so we can go hand in hand. And so when you achieve, you know, you achieve shamatha, then, okay, I've achieved shamatha too. I haven't run out of gas. I haven't stopped in my ability to help you further. So, okay, we achieve shamatha together. We achieve vipassana together. Bodhicitta together. And on. So that's the second type of bodhicitta. It's the navigator. Bodhicitta. and says, come aboard. Come aboard to the good ship, whatever you want to call it, the good ship dharma. But everybody come aboard. And... I'll go there with you. I'll be the navigator on the ship. But we'll get there together. And, and I'm not going to leave anybody behind. But for me to be able to continue to guide you, I need to be also progressing simultaneously. Otherwise, I become less and less effective. Because I know what I'm talking about. So the navigator, of course, the ship sets sail. Well, everybody's just like in an airplane. Everybody is on the same plane. So it doesn't matter who gets in first. Uh, remember that, by the way, when you're in, Phuk- in the Phuket airport. Everybody's leaving at the same time, right? And so likewise with his ship. I mean, everybody's in the same ship. You're getting to the destination at the same time. But there's the navigator-like type of bodhicitta. Right? It's no less compassionate. There's no more self, self-centeredness there at all. It's, it's not there. It's just that to be effective, I think I really need to travel with them. And then I can continue to be a benefit, you know, stage by stage. And then something else dawns and that is in that same the same question how can i be most effective it would actually be i would be more effective if i ventured ahead so i could lead them where i've already been you know like in the old days oh the 1840s 1850s the that great saga how many thousands of movies have been done about it with the wagon trains and the trailblazers you know and the wagon trains heading off to the west to this you know uh, magnificent country but there was always be the you know the head of the wagon train would all would always have been if they're any good at all they would have already been to the destination you know, and they're coming back and they say okay I'll lead this wagon train because I've, I've known the path I've been there at least once and so I know the kind of terrain we'll see I know the kind of obstacles kind of challenges, I know how to deal with them because I've been there all the way and back. And so, yes, I, I'll, I'll lead this wagon train because I'm not only going with you, but I've, I'm coming back to get you, right? And so, in that regard, it would be actually be more effective if you, in the same motivation, uh, streak ahead, go to the culmination, achieve awakening. You'll be much more effective than traveling with them Know what's down the road and down the road and down the road and then come back and help everybody out. Not because it's me first, just the opposite. Just the opposite. Same motivation as the shepherd-like. But it's a simple, simple thing. How can I be most effective? And so that third one is called the king-like bodhicitta. The king-like bodhicitta. Ascend to the summit. Taste the summit. And then come back and bring everybody there. Shepherd-like, navigator-like, king-like bodhicitta. Good Dharma. Oh, Lasso, let's return to the text, and I will attend to this question also. These are pretty straightforward now. Let's see. Oh, yeah. So, very straightforward. We've really covered so much of the, the core of this text as a whole, I think not much commentary is needed. We've come to the, after this all important one, there are two tasks at the beginning and the end. I said it might even be the most important one in the whole text. Um, next one is quite simple. Doesn't need much commentary. And that is bear whichever of the two occurs. Okay. Well, the, it needs a commentary, but not much. The two means felicity and adversity. Good fortune, bad fortune, ups and downs, good days, bad days. Uh, whatever comes, bear it. Take it on. So in the midst of felicity and adversity, continue practicing noting the relativity of both. That's an important one. That's an important one. As we, as we evaluate, as we designate, designate, conceptually designate, label, identify. Uh, good days and bad days. I've heard this a few times. How is a week? Eh, good days and bad days. Mm, ups and downs. In fact, I keep on hearing it. Funny, it hasn't entirely smoothed out yet. Um, it can so feel like they label themselves. Tuesday was a good day, but Wednesday was a bad day. Uh, morning, ups. Afternoon, down. As if they're just kind of being delivered on a platter. As if they're already self-defined, inherently existent. And we're simply reporting, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. This is what happened. I'm just going to tell you what happened to me. Well, we might want to get over that. The relativity, the relativity of the ups and downs. If you now, again, take the little teacup of your mind and expand it to a swimming pool, a lake, or an ocean, And you can focus just for the time being just on the human beings on this planet. And you kind of know what's going on. We have some general impression. All of our days here have been good. Every single day has been a good day. Relatively speaking, where was the bad day compared to the children in the, oh, in the refugee camps on the outskirts of Syria? What was the bad day compared to those living in Somalia? What was the bad day compared to people in Homes for the elderly, whose children have all died. Where was the bad day? We designate relative to our own experience. So compared to Tuesday, Wednesday was, eh, that was more challenging, more difficult. Your Tuesday was somebody else's best day of the year. Your Wednesday was somebody else's best day of the year, right? Isn't it true? And so just to see that it's all within context, nothing absolutely presented as up or down, good or bad, it's simply waiting your designation, placebo or nocebo. Does it please you or does it not please you? But you get to choose. You You get to designate. Designation isn't done to you. It's done by you. And you have a choice. All relative to context. So whatever comes. I mean, he says, bear whatever, the two occurs. But more deeply... Embrace whatever the two of the curse. If Yangtanabuchi can embrace 22 years of concentration camp, I think we can embrace pretty much whatever life dishes up. Why not? So that's the first one. And then guard the two at the cost of your life. You can probably know what those two are the two bodhicitta's. Just cherish them. If you if if you value, I'm not trying to persuade you. I present it to you. It either resonates or it doesn't. Um, but those two bodhicittas, if they are as of the value that they are presented, if that's true, then they are quite obviously, I mean literally, uh, they are more precious than life itself. Something worth making sacrifices for. Because as we invest in them, they will yield back a thousandfold. Cherish them. Reflect upon them. That's that. Doesn't need much commentary. The next one is practice the three austerities. So an austerity is something a bit challenging. Not always so easy. And so this is threefold. And this is, first of all, remembering the, the remedies for mental afflictions. Well, before... And there's going to be three. So remembering the remedy. So when, when a specific... It has to be specific. Again, uh, there are many specific mental afflictions. And so just like a doctor that knows there are many specific illnesses that need specific remedies and not just a generic uh, tonic. Recognizing the type of mental afflictions, the type of imbalances of the mind, and then knowing full well and recalling them. Mindfulness, mindfulness, retrospective mindfulness. Recalling when a mental affliction arises, what's a remedy for it? That's the first one, remembering the remedies. The second one is averting, averting. So when a mental affliction arises, something triggers or catalyzes some type of mental affliction. It's kind of presenting it to you. Like, do you want to dance? Would you like to engage? Can I come in? Can I come in? You know? If you see them, if you're right there with, at, the, uh, at, the, at the doorway of your mind, if, if introspection is your guard, then when the mental affliction of the hour introduces itself and you recognize it, then you can say, uh, thanks for the offer, but no thanks, I'm busy. And avert it. You know? It's really quite happy to take over your mind, to be a house squatter, take over, take over your domicile, but avert it. Say, no, don't want to go there. Flick it away. If it's just... Remember, remember the uh, hit the hit hit the pig on the nose. Remember the hit pig on the nose. If it's trying to come into your kitchen, this five hundred pound pig, if it just stick its nose into the kitchen, before it gets five hundred pounds into the kitchen, which is pretty hard to get rid of, its nose is very sensitive. So just whack it on the nose. So when your mental afflictions, the big five hundred pound swine of the mental afflictions, tries to get in the kitchen of your mind, as soon as the nose comes in, you want to play. Oh, you don't. Okay. So avert. But then if they do get in, then cut off. Cut off the flow of mental afflictions as soon as they arise. In other words, don't let them totally dominate. So that's it. But then, so there it is. Remember the remedies? And you have a nice array. I mean, just in the seven-point mind training, a whole basket full of remedies. And then averting. If you see them just emerging, avert. If they see they've come in, they've come in. Cut off the flow so they don't go for total domination. (coughs) But to do that, it's helpful, and I don't think I've mentioned in this retreat, to know kind of the defining characteristic of a mental affliction. So, again, this is totally prosaic, ordinary, mundane, the definition. It's not some esoteric, philosophical, mystical definition, it's absolutely practical. (coughs) And recall, this came up, I think, quite early in the retreat. Um, a definition as being a set of defining characteristics. That is, what is it that characterizes, let's say, an orange? So the, there are blood oranges, there are green oranges, there are navel oranges, Valencia oranges. I was used to being raised on an orange ranch, so I know a little bit about oranges. Uh, there's a wide variety of oranges, with seeds, without seeds, unpeeled, peeled, and so forth. Um, but if you've seen the array of them, then with a high degree of accuracy, when you see an orange, you'll recognize it. You, know, you won't mistake it for a grapefruit or a lemon, let alone a watermelon or a basketball. And that's because you've, you know just what is it about an orange that makes it an orange and not something, some other kind of citrus fruit or something that's not even a fruit at all or another kind of fruit. So in a similar fashion, there's the defining characteristic of mental affliction, klesha. And it's that which all kleshas have in common. Just like if something is an orange, it must have some characteristics that are common to all oranges. Otherwise, you don't call it an orange. You call it a tangerine or something else, right? And, so, and it must have those characteristics. And so a mental affliction is a mental affliction. I'll give the Tibetan first, because I memorized this a long time ago. Oh, sem ma shi vare che ki sem It's a mental factor. Sem is a mental factor. and sem means literally Something that emerges in the mind—a mental emergence. Sem jung. Sem, you've heard by now, means mind, and jung means to emerge. So, a mental process. But you see, if when you think of a mental emergence, something that's emerging in your mind, something that's coming up, right? right. So, it's it's a mental emergence—a very literal translation. Oh, sem sem jung, a mental emergence, mental process, mental factor that has the function of disturbing the mind, taking away the peace of the mind, disrupting the mind, disturbing the equilibrium of the mind. Whereas prior to its emergence, I would imagine, most, perhaps all of you right now, the mind relatively unafflicted. We won't say absolutely, that's too much. But relatively, right now, I would imagine probably no particular craving, no particular hostility, Arrogance, pride, envy, I would imagine probably kind of peaceful right, right now. Okay, okay. And then at some point, an hour from now, two hours from now, whatever, whenever it may be, some catalyst will come. It can be internally generated by a memory, for example, or an anticipation, a fantasy, or it can be something to the environment, but so whether internal or external, whether real or unreal, because we can have our mental afflictions catalyzed by something that has no reality at all. If, if she were to say that, that would really piss me off. Yeah, I'm getting pissed off, you know, and, and it hasn't happened at all, just in anticipation. If she were to say that, boy, I hate it when she does that, you know. Um, so something triggers, something germinates the seeds of mental afflictions, which we have like a whole, whole garden full of... Whole, bed of soil, of seeds of mental afflictions. They're all just waiting to be watered, to be germinated. And so some kind of a catalyst arises, mental, sensory, whatever it is. And then lo and behold, out it comes. And then as that mental affliction kind of pops up, emerges from the mind, you'll see that all of the mental afflictions, this is the the definition of Buddhism, it's a classic definition. Uh, All of these, and they, they vary widely, the difference between let's say, sexual infatuation as opposed to murderous rage. That's really different, right? One, you want to stroke and cuddle and kiss and say nice things. The other one, you want to just you know, slash and burn and destroy. So they say, well, they don't have anything in common. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Craving, hostility, the whole array, 84,000, however you want the primary mental afflictions, me- secondary mental afflictions. You can study that in as much detail as you wish. Uh, But they all have this in common. They all disturb the equilibrium of the mind. They all throw the mind into imbalance. So it's infatuation. You know what it is. You become deluded. You're not seeing clearly. You're you're exaggerating. You're externalizing the very source of your happiness. I can't live without you and all that kind of baloney, you know? And likewise for hatred and hostility. I can't live on the same planet with you. You need to get off this planet. It's not big enough for the two of us, you know? And so either way, whether it's hostility, whether it's craving, whether it's attachment, jealousy, arrogance, whatever it is, they all have that function. They all throw us out of balance. That balance you did have, it's gone. Because it's been encroached upon by one of these mental afflictions. And so to recognize, maybe you can give it a name early, like envy, arrogance, or what have you. Or maybe you simply... We're in a state of relative equilibrium, and then you see you're not. You're seeing the effect, right? Oh. oh. Some things come up. And then who done it? What caused this? And then trace it. I bet you'll find a mental affliction. And if you don't know what's going on, you'll say, Emory did it. I know why I'm distraught. I know I'm, I'm upset. I- Emery. No, no, L- Lizette. Not- no, I think it's Paolo who did it. Maybe it's the weather. It's something out there. I know something's really bugging me. And I want them to stop. So that's the easy thing to do. And then you want to get real and you say, okay, whatever other people do, whatever the weather is, whatever the guards in my concentration camp do, I just went to the end, the end game. uh, What's disturbing my mind is not out there. Otherwise, the Buddha would be as vulnerable as everybody else. If it really were true that other people, external cir- circumstances can disrupt the equilibrium of your mind, if that's really true, then the Buddha is not free. Because the Buddha would find somebody who could really throw him out of bounds. But if that's true, then you're not a Buddha, and you're not an arhat. Right? So if we take this seriously, the teachings on the arhat, on the Buddha, then that's, it. that's, the, that's the end of the conversation right now. External things do not... They may catalyze if you have the seeds. But if you don't have the seeds, they can do anything to you. And they will not catalyze a mental affliction. Because you've burned the seeds. You've burned the seeds. And well, anybody, you you popcorn. You take a little popcorn, a little kernel of grain, and pop it, plant it, and see how it does. (laughs) Okay. No way. It doesn't matter how much fertilizer, miracle grow, water, sunshine. If it's popped popcorn, okay, that's it. You might want to munch it, but it's not going to grow anything. And so, there it is, to develop this type of introspection of recognizing when the mind is disturbed, when it's relatively, and it's all an inside job, it's all relative to your own circumstance, right? There, my mind was relatively unafflicted, and then at 510, my mind became relatively afflicted. What caused it? And don't just look at the symptom and say, oh, that was a bad meditation session. Bad or good, call it whatever you like. But there was a catalyst there. There was some mental affliction. If the mind is thrown into imbalance, look for the mental affliction. Because it didn't happen by something outside of your mind. The real cause was inside your mind, and it could have been catalyzed by all kinds of things. So that's mental affliction. Really, really helpful. And then we see the bandwidth from a a sociopath who has no problem, no, no conscience, no qualms at all about being a mass murderer or what have you. Per, uh, perpetrating genocide, ethnic cleansing, feeling well, it's a tough job. Somebody's got to do it. Always find some justification for something really horrendous to something very mild. But it's a smooth spectrum. It's a smooth spectrum. You know? And the common denominator is those mental afflictions, and that's how you define them. So that's very useful. Very, very useful. So once you've, you know what the symptom of a mental affliction is, then you catch them early, you remember the remedy, you avert them if they haven't quite taken over yet, or if they have taken over, you make it short. Give them a short story. So, maybe at least one more. Another aphorism. Adopt the three principal causes. I just saw that. That's a misspelling. Adopt the three principal causes. Uh, Three principal causes of being able to bring your your two bodhicittas to their fulfillment. And the first of these is following a qualified mentor, spiritual mentor, guru, teacher. Um, hard, it's Not impossible on your own, but the Dalai Lama said, save you a lot of time. Somebody who is very familiar with the path, understands it well. And in fact, now's a good time to bring in something that is very relevant in this relatively degenerate era that we're living in, all of it being relative. It can get a lot worse, <laughs> let alone here, you know. Um, But in times when you don't have, let's say, one monastery for every thousand people in your country, which is now not true anywhere. It used to be true in one country on the planet, and now it's not true in any country on the planet, because there's only one, and that was Tibet. Six million people, 6,000 monasteries. You can do the math. And then how many yogis, how many teachers, adepts, and so forth and so on, So it really was utterly unique. I don't think there was any place really to to compare with it, unless it would just be another adjacent country like Nepal, like well, Nepal, Bhutan, Sikkim. But when things are degenerate, when there aren't, when you don't have so many institutions, places that are utterly devoted to dharma, you don't have a wide variety of really qualified spiritual mentors to choose from. It's still very helpful to have a, a spiritual friend, a spiritual guide or mentor. And so now speaking generically, just I like I spoke generically of mental afflictions. What do they all have in common? Okay, well, there it is. And so as one is seeking uh, a guide, a mentor on the path, uh, if you go to the classic texts, like the, Lamrim, the Lamrims of tsongkhapa or many other, all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, then go back to the Pali Canon, go back to the great commentaries, and you'll find this is a fully qualified teacher who will guide you on the path to achieving your own liberation. The Shravakayana. Pretty awesome. Should be a master, a master of the Vinaya, the Abhidhamma, the Suttas. Know them inside and out and be very accomplished. You know, Very good if you can find such a person. They're really rare nowadays. You know, you go into the Mahayana. Into the Mahayana. I believe it's the Dodegen Sutra Alamkara, that Tsongkhapa quotes. Very classic quote. Ten qualities. Oh... I won't list them right now, but you read through them and say, whoa. I mean, it's mastered ethics, mastered samadhi, mastered wisdom, and then it goes on, seven more qualities. That's a fully qualified teacher of Mahayana. Okay? Uh, Quite awesome, frankly. Quite awesome. Let alone one has all those ten qualities and speaks a language you understand. (laughs) Now we've cut it way, way down. Um, And then, oh my goodness, you go to Vajrayana. And then you look at the qualities, look at the qualities of a fully qualified Vajra Acharya, a Vajra master. Oh, that's just awesome. That's almost inconceivable. And they just lay it out. This is what you should have. That's really impressive, daunting, and extremely rare, especially now. that, these great, that Almost that whole generation of great masters from Tibet has passed away. Now, oh, incredibly rare. And if you know, where there are such individuals, they probably have thousands of disciples around them. So to be able to get any kind of personal relationship, that's going to be tough. Because you know, they're so rare. And rare, probably rarer now than who knows how many centuries ago it was so rare. So, so one can say, well, that looks pretty dismal then. I you know? say, so, well, no, it's not that dismal. I mean, it's, it is a degenerate era. But let's cut it back and let's make this practical. You know? And so if one is seeking a spiritual, spiritual mentor, friend, and it's not the one you know, it's not like the soulmate, like, you know, that crazy notion that somehow I got whacked in two sometime in the past and I'm walking around as a half a person looking for, where's my other half? Where's my other half? You know, it's a very odd notion. Um, so it's not that. I mean, for the, some individuals, there is one guru. That does happen. And in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, in most cases, you have more than one. But one may very well be, and as in my case, and I'm totally normal in this regard, one is really the central. You're a root guru. But I've had many, have, 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 do have, will have, many gurus. But of course, you know who my primary guru is. Um, but let alone your primary guru. That will, come, that will become obvious over time. You don't need to push it. You don't need to squeeze it. You don't need to beat the bushes. Who's my primary guru? Okay, cool it with that one. How about just finding a qualified spiritual mentor who can take you on the next step, step of the path, from where you are to the next stage on your path, your own evolution. And three qualities... Three quality to society here. To Maybe there'll be four. We'll see. As we are just scanning, evaluating, you'll hear different people teaching and teaching Dharma texts, giving simply advice, giving meditation instruction, and so forth. Maybe giving empowerments, oral transmissions, and so forth. So you encounter such a person that you consider, well, I I would consider. I'll, I'll consider this uh, regarding this person as my spiritual mentor, or guru. Uh, Then you check out some simple criteria. Do you have a very clear, quite unequivocal sense? Does this person have more understanding and or realization than yourself regarding the path you would like to follow? I I chose my words carefully. Understanding, preferably realization, real experience, but at least understanding. Understanding is not nothing person has understanding, you remember? Understanding, experience, realization, and acquiring confidence. Well, understanding is something. And if this person has understanding you don't, then that person can take you to the understanding you don't have now, but you could, because this person does have that understanding. At least that. And then preferably, of course, some realization, some experience, that would be good. And beyond experience, maybe some realization, that would be great. Oh, it has acquired confidence, all the better, but at the very least understanding. If the person has no more understanding of of the dharma you wish to follow than you do, then, of course, there's just no reason to regard that person as your teacher, because they're not going to lead you anywhere, right? And so, do you have that sense? This person understands more, perhaps has experienced, realized more than I. In which case, if it's yes, okay, check. That's the first point. I think there's going to be three points. The second point is, and this we have to evaluate, we have to get some kind of clarity, some type of confidence, and that is, what's this person's motivation? This person is teaching, making him or herself available as a teacher, a mentor, a guide, giving teachings, maybe empowerments, oral transmission, and so forth. What's the motivation? And I'm not talking about asking them what their motivation is, because they'll say something, Uh, but just by your intelligence, your intuition, observing closely. What do you sense? What's going on here? What's the motivation? And teaching Dharma, that can be the incentive, the motivation, the drive behind that can be very, very wide. There can be many, many reasons for teaching Dharma. You know, it would be nice to think that everybody's teaching out of pure compassion. Um, I don't think that's quite true. Or there are alloys. You know, There's mixed motivations. But so, okay, there's mixed motivation. But we need to come to some kind of conclusion. There needs to be some kind of confidence that the person's primary motivation is to be of service. It's compassion. They would really like to help us overcome the suffering and the causes of suffering we're experiencing. Would really like to lead us to a greater sense of well-being. And that needs to be overwhelmingly, like anybody who's seen the Matterhorn, this wonderful, magnificent mountain in Switzerland, if you look at it, you kind of don't see any other mountains around. It's kind of like, whoa, that, that's, a, that's a mountain. That's quite an impressive mountain. It doesn't have much competition right around it because it stands like bold, very beautiful mountain. And so likewise, the teacher's overwhelming motivation really has to be kindness, compassion, loving kindness. If something else, if, if there are twin peaks, three peaks, four peaks, uh, there's that, but he really likes to have sex with his female students, and he really likes the money, and he li- he really likes to be praised. And he's really looking for developing a network of his, so he can be do a, a big power job of having his empire. Uh, but he's very kind too, very compassionate. That's kind of like, oh boy, got a whole mountain range here. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Which ones? You might want to take a few steps backward, you know, like, you know. Uh, but when it's quite clear that the overwhelming motivation, the dominant motivation. It's simply something very simple. We all know what it is. So kindness, compassion. Then that's good. Then check. Check. Okay, two. Now we have two. And then third one is now in, is entirely subjective. The other ones are not entirely subjective. I mean, there is something happening over there. The person does have a motivation. The person does have a certain level of understanding and realization or not. Uh, but that's not something you simply make up. right? It's, there's something to be discovered there. But the third one is... It's not simply subjective, but it's really primarily subjective. And that is, call it chemistry, call it rapport, call it affinity, call it resonance. Um, The particular way this person teaches, is it helpful? Is, Is the person, at least by words, inspiring? Is the person's way of conduct inspiring? Do you have a heartfelt connection? Is there some kind of a warmth, kind of feeling that, yeah, this could be my spiritual friend? You know, not my master. Maybe master too. Maybe that's your choice. But spiritual friend is the word I like, Kalyanamitra. mitra. Um, but it's personal. The other person may have even very deep realization and very pure motivation, but that connection isn't there. And that's not the other person's fault, and they're not your fault either. Just like people don't fall in love with everybody. You fall in love with you know one person, two people, whatever. But uh, and like friendship, we don't form the same friendships with everybody we meet. There's sometimes a special affinity, something shared, something common, kind of a resonance. And so likewise with a spiritual friend. It's not something entirely in a class by itself. But is there that resonance, kind of like a real connection, heart-compelled connection? If not, uh, then you might receive information from that person, might receive instruction, could be helpful, but probably not a strong enough connection to really regard that person as your guru, spiritual friend, spiritual mentor. There needs to be something. Even if, I mean, many people, I know this true, many people regard his only Dalai Lama as their guru. They've never had a conversation with him. They've never maybe even been within 100 feet of him. They may have only seen him on television or in videos and so forth. But they sense his presence. They hear him speak. They know of his way of life, the way he influences the world. And faith is stirred. And so whether they've been in the same room with him, many of them have, many of them haven't. How many Tibetans, just to take an example, how many Tibetans in Tibet now regard the Dalai Lama as their guru? Well, millions. How many of them have seen him? Very few. Very, very few. You can be sure that if you're watching television in, in Lhasa or any part of Tibet, one thing I think you can be sure of you'll never see the image of the Dalai Lama appear on your screen. That's not going to happen. they all all hearsay. But do they regard him as their group? Sure, absolutely. The heart connection is there. He knows, they know, that he cares for them, watching over them, looking after them as much as he possibly can because he cannot be where they are. So, those are the three qualities. Greater experience, understanding, realization, good motivation, benevolent motivation, good connection, then. then good. And there may be some, for example, if you're a monk, and you're just, you've just become a monk, and you really like to be a good monk, you'd like to know what your precepts are, what's the nature of, not just a, it's not just a bunch of rules. To be a monk is entering into a whole new lifestyle. right? The rules are just kind of, it's like marriage vows. I mean, a marriage isn't just about, okay, what are my vows today? You know, That's a little bit of a structure, but a marriage is something way beyond you know, a, set, a list of marriage vows. And so likewise, in the monastic, it's a way of life. It's a commitment. It's a pledge. Uh, and the little markers are the vows that you have. And so when you first become a monk, it's very helpful, and the Buddha strongly encouraged this. Um, when you first become a monk, uh, buddy up with somebody. Find somebody who's going to be your mentor, to teach you the Vinaya. Teach you the Vinaya. What's it like to be a monk? What's, what are the priorities? What's the, what is it? And, and by the way, I'll explain the precepts to you as well. What are the precepts? What are the vows? And so maybe the first mentor you have really knows a lot about Vinaya, but has never meditated. A lot of monks like that never meditate. But they may be very good monks and keeps really keeping pure ethics. And so that monk, that mentor, who has greater understanding, realization than you do, is teaching you out of benevolence, good connection. Then you'll learn vinya from that one. And then the monk may very well say, I, th- I think I've taught you what I know. That's what I do. And I'm a cook, by the way. I'm cooking for the monastery, but I'm a good cook and I keep my, my vows very, w- very well. If you want to learn cooking, I can teach you that too. You want to learn how to cook? No? Okay. Uh, then you would seek another one. Maybe you want to learn shamatha. And you find a shamatha master who's actually achieved shamatha, but hasn't practiced vipassana or Higher stages on the path. And so then, good connection? Okay, that's your shamatha teacher. And then, as an example, Atisha. Atisha, when he really wanted to develop, he wanted to fathom the, the depths of bodhicitta. He wanted to fathom the depths of bodhicitta. And this was, I find, a really interesting story. Whoops, time's almost over. Okay, this is going to come tomorrow. But you know I have a love stories. This is a good one, though. Um, no, all my stories are good. Otherwise, I wouldn't share them. They're good for at least one person here. But this is the good one. Here is this extraordinary scholar. I mean, he was renowned. He was really, really famous. He was a consummate pundit, great scholar. And, and yet, in the midst of you know, a sterling career, renowned monk, scholar, adept, and all of that, he wanted to more fully and deeply fathom the nature of bodhicitta. So he, he heard of this lama, Serlingba in Tibetan, uh, Tibetan translation of his name, Heard about him as just a consummate master of bodhicitta He said, well, then I'm, I want to learn from the consummate master. I want to learn from the best. And so he, he set off on an 11-month 11, 11 voyage from India off to a place probably in, almost certainly in Indonesia. They're still looking. Uh, Kandula. Remember Kandala? She was invited by Lama They found a place. They thought maybe this is where Atisha met with his teacher, Serlingba. It was one, one, one of the islands in Indonesia. And she went, th- and what I heard, this is hearsay, but I heard it from some people who were with her uh, from New Zealand. And she went there. She's, shall we say, very sensitive, intuitive. And what I heard was, I was simply told this, uh, he passed through here, but this isn't, is not where he really hunkered down and really trained with his teacher. She sen- sensed his kind of vibration, but it was a passing vibration and not a place he'd really... So I think we don't know exactly where, but... The, the, I think this is a complete, completely literal and true account. He made this very, very arduous voyage. Eleven months. I don't know how it can take that long, but that's what they say. And then, and maybe, maybe they had to look all over the place. He couldn't GPS, you know, his teacher, or you know, Google him. Where are you now? Or hello, is that Is that you? Good. Where, where are you? You know. I mean, you can imagine maybe that. Maybe that's it. Because you know, even by sailing vessel, it's not eleven months to go from the east of India to Indonesia. I mean, it's not that far. But if you don't know where he is, well, that can take longer. In any case, he found him. And then he trained with him. And that was his Bodhichitta teacher. And he came back, and he brought that lineage back to India, and it made its way to Tibet. And it made its way here. Serlingba is part of our guru lineage for the seven-point mind training. It traces back to him. By way of Atisha, by way of Domdomba, and on. So, So there it is. Um, you may have a whole sequence of gurus along your path, but it's, I have to say this, and then we're going to take a break. It's not like dating. We all know what dating is like, right? We went out for a while, but then I found, it, I kind of outgrew him. I mean, maybe it's, he was a jerk, but leaving that is like, no, we after a while just kind of, we just kind of drifted apart. Or I found that I was I was kind of just, I was moving on. And so, he's not my boyfriend anymore. And that, that second one isn't either. And that 13th one, no, we just dumped him last month. But now I'm at number 14. And he, he's good for now. We're having fun. Not like that, right? The, the other ones are, my ex-guru, my ex-guru, my ex-guru. There is no word for ex-guru in, in Sanskrit. <laughs> you have to make that one up, you know. Uh, it's cumulative. And I feel that way. I feel that way. To Sugata, that that German who became Norwegian monk that I met in Norway. He's still my teacher. He died, died years ago. And then as I mentioned to you, I'm mean, with tears in my eyes because he just meant so much to me. But in the middle of my retreat, I phoned my teacher, the Tibetan Lama, at Göttingen. He's reti- he's eighty-five years old now, so he t- retired years ago. But he was the one that was he wasn't waiting for me, but he was one he was there. And I wound up being his only teacher and to speak with him and to hear his voice. And it meant it meant the world to me. So the aspiration is in future lives, however long it may be from now until enlightenment. May you all catch me with the hooks of your compassion. I want to meet all of you again. I want to be under your guidance again. That's a relationship with a guru. Even if it just teaches you the 10 non virtues, or teaches you something very simple, something basic, it remains your guru. That's that. See you tomorrow.